I want to speak this morning on uh, Mary's song, which is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. I will read that quickly once more. And Mary said, verse 46, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So this song of Mary is often known in the in the wider church as the Magnificat. Um, the beginning of Luke's gospel is, is a bit like, almost like a musical that's so full of music, isn't it? So full of song. Includes a number, uh, all, all known in the church uh, by their Latin titles because they're taken from the um, Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. And Luke records, for example, the the Song of Zechariah, which is called the Benedictus. Um, we have the Song of Simeon uh, in Luke, which is the Nunc Dimittis. There's the Gloria hymn, known as the Hymnus Angelicus, because it was the song of the angels. A multitude of the heavenly hosts, the scripture says, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And then we have this song of Mary, known as the Magnificat, because it begins in the Vulgate with the Latin Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. R.C. Sproul notes that there is great significance to this number of songs in such a short, concentrated span of time. Because in the Old Testament, Israel sang these types of songs at moments of great victory. When God visited them in the midst of their despair and their defeat and redeemed them, they would often celebrate with a, with a song. And we have many examples of that in the Old Testament. There's the song of Moses in the Exodus. There's the song of Miriam. There's the song of Deborah in Judges. And the burden of these songs is that God has come down, God has visited his people, and God has delivered them. And there is a great victory by God for God. But there's no other place in Scripture, and I'm sure about this, there's no other place in Scripture where there are so many victory songs in such a short period of time. This is the story you see of the supreme visit of God to the world, to his people. This is the supreme 
ultimate victory of God. And this is why there are so many songs, so many victory songs. Do you know, when you're saved by a divine power, when you're saved through a sovereign divine visitation and intervention, God puts a new song in your life. He puts a new song in your mouth. King David experienced this in the psalm. He said, and he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. And we Christians know something about that. That God, by a divine visitation into our lives, a divine intervention, there's something in our hearts, there's a song, a new song in our hearts and, in our and on our lips. John, in his vision of Christ in the book of Revelation, uh, fast-forwards the remote control of time to the very end and to the consummation. And, and he, he, he writes in Revelation 14, And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. You see, when, when the whole world ends and everyone's knee and every is bowed and every tongue is confessing the great victory of God what will there be there will be a song this new song of victory and that's why Christians sing so much we have this song this melody in our hearts sometimes it's liturgical in our in our church meetings like we have today uh, so far um, and sometimes if you're anything like me it's uh, you're driving the car and uh, you look back when you arrive home and you think, well, how did I not crash? Because you're, you're taken up with praise and you're singing. Sometimes it's stuff you're making up, but somehow it's coming from the Bible. And th there's this song that's pouring out of you because there's a, God's put a melody in our hearts. as a new song of salvation. Well, I think we have an example here of a child of God just singing to God out of the overflow of her heart. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't worry about being, you know, oh, that's a bit charismatic. That's what we should be like. There should be an overflow. Our heart should be filled with God. And this is what happens to Mary. She was moved by the Holy Spirit. I don't think she rehearsed this. I don't think she was like a poet where she does 10 or 11 drafts of, of a poem. And this is spontaneous, I believe. She's just magnifying the Lord in a new song. And she's obviously moved, isn't she, to the depths of her being. She sings, she says, with her soul and with her, with her spirit. My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. You see, she had been given the amazing news by the angel Gabriel that the long-promised Messiah had come and that the long-promised Messiah was actually in her womb and that she is the mother of the Lord Jesus. Gabriel had announced it. Elizabeth, her cousin, confirmed it. Without the aid of man, while still a virgin, she, will, she is conceived in her womb by the overshadowing power of the highest and will bring forth a son and, sh and he will be called Jesus. 
salvation, deliverance, the Messiah had come. The long promises of the Old Testament, all the prophetic promises had come true. God had been faithful to the covenant of grace, to the covenant of salvation. Faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. Faithful to the Davidic covenant. Faithful to the covenant of grace. Luke 1, here in this song, verses 54 and 55, Mary speaks of this. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. You see, this Christmas story, this incarnation, didn't come out of the blue. It had a long gestation period. In the fullness of time, Christ came, Paul says in Galatians. Born of a woman, made under the law. Zechariah, in his song, later on in this chapter, says something very similar. Verses 72 and 73. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. You see, the Christmas story isn't some kind of sickly, sentimental story. It's the fulfillment of, of God's covenant promises. And Mary is bursting now with praise, bursting with awe, bursting with excitement. God has kept his promises. And you know, everyone who truly understands the Old Testament, uh, really at any level, at any level of covenant theology, when you come to these narratives, these birth narratives, what you're seeing is not some sentimental story. You're seeing the fulfillment of the long plan of redemption right through the Old Testament. And Mary, who knew scripture inside out, is bursting with praise. Her soul magnifies. Her spirit rejoices. She's like David in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his name. I mean, have you... If you don't really know something of that, then I, I, I sort of worry whether you've really caught this, or whether you've really got the right type of Christianity, because there's something within in all of us. I mean, it's not every day the same, but there's something within us which wants to bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, all that is within me wants to praise his name for, for all the benefits that he has poured into our lives. Well, I hope and pray that you know this joy of salvation in your life. You see, Mary's song here, the Magnificat, in my understanding, is her response to God's redemption, God's plan of redemption. This song, in other words, is full of the gospel. Mary declares that Jesus, who she is bearing, is the promised saviour who has come to save sinners. And in response, she magnifies the Lord. Mary models to us the right response to the good news of the gospel. Do you know, so many people um, 
They never benefit from the good news of the gospel because they're too full of themselves. They're too full of their self-importance. You see, the message of the gospel is that by nature we are poor and we are needy and sinful and we need to be saved. And most people despise the message of the gospel because it's God telling the truth about them. And the truth is that we are not capable of saving ourselves. But Mary's response models the right response to the gospel. You see, when the angel, angel Gabriel announced the birth of Christ and, and, and Elizabeth's prophetic words confirmed it, her response was to magnify the Lord. To have large thoughts, not of herself, but to have large thoughts of God. She magnified the Lord. Now when we, make, when we magnify, it's not like, I, I think the, we're not saying that she's using a microscope to make a tiny little weak God bigger. It's rather she's using a telescope to see this enormous great God that she can have a view of the great God and of his whole plan of redemption. And she magnifies the Lord. And as she does, as she sees this great, vast, powerful God, her view of herself becomes low. She recognises her own low estate. Verse 48, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. She shows her true humility in her response to Gabriel as well. Verse 38, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. You see, Mary, we believe, was not sinless. She calls Jesus in her womb, My Saviour, God, my Saviour. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Saviour. She was not uh, sinless. She wasn't even that well connected. She she was a, ha a poor handmaiden. She wasn't a Judean princess who was enjoying the favour of, of the Romans. Um, she wasn't chosen for her sinlessness. She was chosen for her lowliness. So that all the glory would go to God. In her lowliness she was shown mercy and made the mother of the Messiah. And even in this unique and highly favoured position in the plan of redemption, she did not exalt herself. She magnified God. She exalted God. The object of her song is not herself, but who God is, what God has done for her. And in her song, she contrasts, in a way, her low estate with how God deals with the proud man. In Luke 1, 51 and 52, in her song, she sings, He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. You see, Mary is an example of how God reaches down to lift those up who are humble. The gospel 
It's the strangest, I love the gospel, but it's the strangest thing in the world. It turns everything upside down. It's the reverse of everything. You see, those who are proud will be humbled, and those who are humbled will be exalted. This is a principle that runs right through the Bible. As Mary says in verse 53, He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. You think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, or the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The parable ends with these words, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So we can test ourselves against this great gospel, against this great saviour, this plan of redemption. Is there this... Um, is there this exaltation of God, this magnifying of God? Is there, is there this recognition of our lowest state, of how low we are before God? Mary is so full of praise for the, the way God works in this world. She's full of praise for how God shows his power. God could show his power in any way he wanted, but he shows his power in this world by scattering the proud because no one can stand against his power that's one thing he does and he, he scatters the proud it says in the imaginations of their heart this is only imagination when you're proud um, and pride by the way is the original sin it's the, it's, if, you, if you trace sin back to its essential nature it's pride and it's the sin which will take most people to hell in the end you see the proud imagine or construct their own reality because the proud see themselves as central to everything the whole world revolves around me and my needs they dislike it when their views are challenged or, or an alternative view is, is put forward. Um, pride constructs a false reality which keeps you from the truth about yourself and about God. And the proud magnify themselves. The humble Christian magnifies the Lord. That's a good test for me, for you today. What are we bigging up? Are we bigging up ourselves or are we bigging up God? In our society today, pride, this imagination of the heart in pride is so evident, isn't it? People have, are proud in their false views on gender identity. They're proud of their false view, views on sexual identity and human sexuality they're proud of their false views on how to raise children and no alternative view is tolerated if you, if you give a biblical view you're a Nazi you see there, there's this pride this unwillingness to see an, an alternative view this is the imagination of the heart and in western societies to varying degrees the mighty from their seats are implementing laws to protect and implement the false imaginations of the proud 
But Mary magnifies the Lord because she knows that as God has acted in the past, scattering the proud, kicking the mighty off their seats and off their thrones, as he's done so in the past, he will continue to do right through into the future. She speaks in what's called uh, in theology the prophetic past tense. In other words, Mary knows that in redemptive history, God has always humbled the proud. He's always exalted the poor. And because he's done it in the past, it's as good as certain that he will continue to do it in the future. He's always done it. And now he's doing it again, even in her life, you see. Supremely choosing a humble teenage handmaiden to be the virgin mother of the Saviour. And Mary understands because she, she's, although she may have been between 13 to 16 years old, we don't know, a young teenager anyway, she was steeped in the Bible. All of these words that she, she's singing there, you can trace them back to, to verses in the Old Testament, particularly the song of Hannah. And she's magnifying the Lord because she knows that that God's great acts of salvation in the past, they were only foreshadowed, they only foreshadowed, they were only types of this great salvation which is now taking place. Dear friends, it's not the proud who go home justified before God, but the humble. Mary in her life and in her song teaches us that in order to be saved we have to humble ourselves before the Lord the Lord lift up, lifts up the humble he exalts the lowly and he fills the hungry the story Mary tells through this song is one of God's power she was God's servant who was used by God to display one of his greatest acts of power the overshadowing of a virgin's womb the conceiving of a, a sinless baby boy who in his one person would be truly God and truly man and who would be the Messiah, the fulfilment of all the promises. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Amen. And in the face of all of that, truth, um, she magnifies the Lord. She rejoices in God her saviour in a way perhaps never expected our God scatters the proud our saviour rather scatters the proud by living a life and dying a death that turns the world and all its proud systems upside down his advent into the world, his incarnation, the Apostle Paul says, is an example of this topsy-turvy uh, way of, of doing things in the Gospel. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is Philippians 2, of course. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man what he humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus constantly taught that making yourself the centre of your world rather than the God who created you will in the end cast you into hell. He taught that what the proud man prizes, God despises. To be great in God's eyes, according to Jesus, in the kingdom of God you have to be full of humility. Matthew's Gospels records a rather funny incident to me where the disciples are arguing, saying about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be top dog when we get to heaven? And Jesus says, be it, but it shall not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know from the rest of Scripture, I'm not sure how much Mary knew at this stage, how much she understood at this stage. But we know from the rest of Scripture how her Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in this lowly estate, leaving his riches to save his people, was to humble himself even to the point of death upon the cross. But God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Well, of course, to the world, to most people, this whole method, this whole plan of salvation is complete foolishness. It was certainly foolishness to the Romans who, who prized strength. They thought mercy was weak. The way to get on in life was to, be, was to be ruthless and tough and to eliminate the weak. That's why they just there were these piles of, of babies, disabled babies. They didn't want disabled children in the world. They just threw them away. They were weak. Get old and sick. Just euthanasia. That's the way we're going, isn't it? We've gone that way. But not so with God. What king in history the world thinks has ever left his riches to serve the weakest and the poorest of his land? What kind of God comes to the world to be the child of a lowly handmaiden in a stable and laid in a manger? What kind of lawgiver is born under the law to have to obey the law that he gave in, in the first place? It's all upside down, isn't it? But he does it on behalf of his people, you see. And what kind of God saves his people by dying for them on a cross? That is foolishness to the world. But the gospel is all about the second person of the Trinity doing all these things for us. It's foolishness to the proud, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. This is one of the great lessons from this song, I believe. You have to get low before God can lift you up. You have to acknowledge your poverty before you can be made rich. You have to be hungry before you're filled. 
The Lord Jesus, the saviour of sinners born to Mary, cannot save you while you're busy trying to save yourself. There is only one saviour. And if you think you have the job, then the Lord will leave you to do it. But it will be the biggest DIY disaster you will ever make. Because you don't have the skill, you don't have the power, and you don't have the qualifications to save yourself, to mend yourself, to be the saviour of your own soul. Do you know if anyone had the basis to feel, to feel pride, if anyone felt had reason to be to feel important before God and men it was Mary she was visited not just by an angel but by an archangel Gabriel she was told she was highly favoured she was told that she was blessed among women and that for generations to come she would be referred to as the blessed woman we don't believe that she was sinless nor do we believe that she is to be venerated as a co-mediator with Christ. But she is to be highly esteemed in the church of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with saying the Blessed Mary. Because she, scripture says, calls her that. All generations should rightly call her blessed. Of all people she could have been proud. But what do we find? She was humble and obedient to the will of God. God can't live in the heart of a person who is determined to hold on to their pride. He can only dwell with those who have come to the place Mary came to. Those who see their lowest state before God. Isaiah said in, in, in chapter 57 and verse 15 of his prophecy, For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabited eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place God is there he's, he's running the universe he's, he's on his throne that's where he dwells he dwells in heaven but he also dwells somewhere else Isaiah says and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's where God lives. He lives in a broken heart. He lives in a life where someone is broken before God because they know they, they come to the end of their resources, that they cannot save themselves, that they're a sinner in need of a saviour and they come to God and says Lord I need a saviour I've tried saving myself i come to the end of myself Lord save me have mercy on me forgive my sins that's where God dwells in a heart like that it's the same if you, even after a Christian if, you're, pri if you're, you're full of pride as a Christian well God won't your communion with God will be very limited it says in Peter that God even opposes the proud in the church it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Pride is, a, pride is a killer, dear friends, and it comes so naturally to us. 
The Lord Jesus said the same thing in a different way. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's to know that you're a sinner in need of a saviour. That's really what it means. It's to realise that you have no merit of your own to make yourself acceptable to God. It's to see your poverty and to see his riches. And he will give you the whole kingdom of heaven, dear friends. All of it. You'll become an heir and co-heir with Christ of an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. Well, Mary magnifies the Lord because she knew from the scriptures and from the angel Gabriel and she knew from Elizabeth that the child in her womb was the saviour. God, my saviour, she rejoices in. She says this because for all her suitability to be the chosen vessel of the Lord, she was still a sinner in need of a saviour. Like all the other Old Testament saints, she was troubled when, when in the presence of an angel. She was troubled in her heart when she heard heavenly words. She knew she was a sinner. Isaiah was a holy man, but he, he was undone in Isaiah 6, wasn't he? In the presence of holiness. Mary rejoices in what God has done. Rejoices in God, in what God will do. She rejoices in God's ability to fulfill his plans and purposes in salvation. She rejoices in his strength. She rejoices in God's reversal of the status quo. The humble are lifted, the proud are brought low. She magnifies the Lord for all these reasons. She explodes with this song of praise for all these reasons. But I think... Perhaps most of all it's because her reaction is because of this plan of salvation, this incarnation event. What this plan of salvation says about who God is. I didn't put that, I didn't put that quite as I meant to. I believe that essentially she explodes with praise. Not so much because of what's happening to her, but because of what all this is saying about God. If you, know, if you notice, she refers to, to numerous attributes of God, and we won't go through them all here, but she references God, first of all, in, in verse 49, in respect of God's might. Verse 49, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things. The gospel tells us that God is mighty. We've already spoken about this already in a way. But, but the wonderful thing about this is that Mary testifies to the power of God not in a general theological way, but to the power of God in her life. For he that is mighty has done to me great things. There's only one Mary, of course, but 
everyone can know the salvation that Jesus the Saviour can bring. And I wonder if there's been a time in your life where, where you, can, you can point to he that is mighty do, doing great things for me. Because I'm telling you now, it, it requires a great act of divine might to save a sinner. It requires a supernatural mighty act of God to be saved. The Bible explains that one of the great tragedies of the human condition is that we are in bondage to Satan and to the kingdom of darkness. Without being conscious of it very often, every single person born in this world is controlled by the values and assumptions and the lies of an anti-Christ, an anti-God world system. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works, it worketh in the children of disobedience. And these powers... When we're outside of Christ, these powers are far too strong, strong for us to rid ourselves from. We're literally slaves. We're in chains of ignorance and spiritual decay. We're spiritually dead, Paul says. We have no way to respond to God unless he intervenes with what? His might. His power. But the, God, the great news of the gospel, and, and this will become clear in the life of Christ as it grows, is that God raises the dead. Jesus raised the dead. It's, it's showing us that he is, he is the, the, the life giver. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. You see, to use the, the words of Mary, which is really more Old Testament language, he has shown strength with his arm. Every time a sinner is saved, every time we go in and preach the Gospels and someone responds in faith, it's God showing his might, doing something even more powerful than the Exodus, than the Passover, than all the great miracles of the Old Testament, because he's bringing a dead sinner to life through the might of the Gospel, through the might of the Holy Spirit. And that might and power of God is available to you. And he can change you bring you to life and that's the greatest miracle you see God's arm is never withered he has the biggest biceps of them all I mean of course God doesn't really have an arm it's, it's a way of speaking but spiritually speaking God's arm is never weak it's always strong it's so strong it can scatter the chessboard of the proud he ends the game because he's more powerful He has a mighty arm to save sinners through Christ. And then also we see here in this song the essential reason why it was necessary for the Lord Jesus to come from heaven into this world in the first place. 
We see this at the end of verse 49 in the words, and holy is his name. Mary, Mary references the might of God, but she now references the holiness of God. The gospel brings to our attention the holiness of God. God is holy, he's not like us. There is no sin in God. Only the light of pure holiness. We can't really get our heads around it. But in contrast, it only takes a moment, doesn't it, for us to realise that we are full of sin. Even, our, even our, in our best moments, as we, if we really analyse it, there's some, there's some motive underneath lurking which spoils it, even if it's just a bit. Oh, I hope somebody notices I did that. Oh, I hope that, that, that'll make me look good in a, in, in, a, in a better light. There's always something. Because there's sin in, in us still. But there's nothing in God but pure light. The light of pure holiness. Um, the Bible tells us the story of how sin came into this world and polluted our minds and actions. And all of the chaos, all of the violence, all of the heartache, all the disease is as a result of man turning his back upon his God. Going his own way is worse than us just ignoring God's instructions for life because the Bible is God's instruction on how to live in this world. We've actually not only ignored God's instructions, we've written our own instruction book. And the problem is our instruction book is the very opposite of God's instruction. It's no wonder we're in such a mess, isn't it? But what this gospel, this song of Mary tells us is that God in his nature is holy and he is just and he is wrathful, he's personally angry and constantly angry with everyone outside of Christ because of who he is, because of his nature, because he is holy. Therefore, it's not an option for him just to overlook sin. That's what we do. Well, that's what I did perhaps too often, is sweep things under the carpet when the children are naughty. We'll, we'll deal with that later, or they're tired, or... We'll overlook it for now. God can't do that, you see. He, I mean, he did in a sense in the Old Testament, but he knew that the Saviour was, was to be sent into the world. He has to deal with sin. Sin has to be punished because God is holy. And because God is holy, there is a judgment for sin and there is hell for those who continue in sin. I don't particularly want to be a big hellfire preacher, but this is what's in the Bible. We can't miss it out because it's there. And Jesus said it more than anyone. There is a judgment, there is a hell, if we stay in our sin. But the message of the gospel is that God the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Christ was born... He became a man in order to die as a sin substitute for his people. 
The justice of God against sin was satisfied by Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And in this way, God could forgive while remaining just. He could forgive while remaining consistent with his own character. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as one holy trinity played a vital role in the accomplishment of our salvation. But it was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Which is why it's not quite right to say that God was crucified on the cross, although of course Jesus was God, but we don't say God was crucified on the cross because the Father nor the Holy Spirit died as a perfect man upon the cross, only the Messiah born to Mary. But all this was necessary and required because of one thing, because holy is his name, because of God's holiness. God is mighty, Mary says, God is holy. And, uh, and you know, if, it's just, if, if, it, if the gospel just stopped there, if that, there, if that was all there was to God, and that would be enough, you and I would be doomed. We would be lost. We wouldn't be here today. Because, thank the Lord, Mary references a third attribute of God in verse 50, namely that God is a merciful God. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Maybe this is the attribute that causes us the greatest joy in the Christian believer. God is a God of mercy. Mary sings in verse 54, He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Zechariah later in the chapter speaks of the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. In verse 78, he speaks of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us. Well, in conclusion, the God of heaven is a merciful God. What does it mean to say that? What is the mercy of God? It means this, that any sinner who desires it can count on God showing forgiveness if you turn from your sins and follow Christ. God's mercy is his sovereign choice not to hold our sins against us if we repent and believe. His mercy towards us as sinners is based on the work of his Son upon the cross and it means that if we seek his mercy we will most certainly receive his mercy. And our sins will never be held against us, not once, not for a nanosecond, again, in this life or in the future and even on the day of judgment. Our sins will not be remembered, they won't be brought up, they won't be referenced because they're washed away, they're wiped away. It's a wonderful thing, this gospel, dear friends. Well, this uh, song of Mary 
tells us a lot, and I've hardly really scratched the surface. It tells us a lot about the plan of redemption. It tells us a lot about the character of God himself. It tells us of our need of a saviour and of his ability and thank the Lord his willingness to save us. But it has this warning. We have to rid ourselves of, the pri of our pride. How do we do that? By recognising our need, thoroughly forsaking sin and then knowing that there is abundant mercy in the gospel. How do we receive the mercy? Well, Jesus, Jesus, he didn't give a great theological paper on it. He just said, come to me. He just said, come to me. He just said, follow me. He just says, leave it all behind. Leave all the nets behind. Leave the old life behind and come to me and follow me. That's, what, that's how you receive the mercy of God. Christ was born to Mary to be her saviour and to be your saviour. And this caused our heart to sing. And may you, may all of us sing the song of salvation in our lives. And I commend to you this morning the example of Mary. Mary, that humble virgin who knew the Lord Jesus Christ to be her saviour and her Lord. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com That's grace2seekers at gmail.com Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk